Hello and welcome to The Scrum, a podcast about politics from Beacon Hill to Beltway. I'm Adam Riley. For this week's episode, we wanted to take a closer look at a story we thought hasn't gotten the attention it deserves, a move among full-time professors at Tufts Medical School to join the Service Employees International Union. Now, in recent years, groups of adjunct professors all around the country have made similar moves to unionize, but this could be one of the first times that full-time professors have been involved, and it's happening right here in our backyard. To explain why that's important and how it could change the way unions and universities work, I'm joined here in our studios at WGBH by Karina Mayuri, a professor of developmental molecular and chemical biology at Tufts Medical School and one of the organizers of the unionizing effort, and by Harvey Silverglade, a civil rights attorney based in Cambridge. Karina and Harvey, thank you both for being here. Thanks. So, Karina, let me start with you. Sure. What was it that made you and your colleagues at the medical school decide that you needed union representation? Well, first of all, Adam, thanks very much for the potential opportunity to speak in coherent sentences. (laughs) My pleasure. So how it all started was in the summer, the administration came to us and said, we need to sort out our faculty um, salary policy. And we want to come up with a new policy that's transparent, equitable and revenue neutral. So Since the summer, faculty have been working on this, and yet every idea that they came up with, every plan, was thrown back by the administration as this won't work, we've got no money. And every plan that um, was proposed in the end came down to, well, faculty would have to take a huge cut in salary or certain groups of faculty wouldn't get, you know, wouldn't be uh, um, remunerated appropriately. What kind of cuts in salary are you talking so, about? So uh, up to like 50% for some people. So this was quite significant. And and just so I have a sense, I mean, 50% is a, a huge chunk, regardless of what the baseline level is. But what sort of salaries do faculty at, at the medical school make? At well, Tufts? so for professors who are tenured, the average salary is about, I think, 180000 It's all publicly available knowledge. And associate professors, which is one rank below, their average salary is somewhere around 100000 Yeah, and that's the actual average salaries. Yeah. And were both those groups looking at potential cuts of 50%? Yes. I mean, not everybody from all groups, but a significant proportion from both groups. Yeah. So, you know, looking at that, we were sort of thinking, well, this isn't revenue neutral and this is not very equitable either. And so we started asking questions about, well, when you say there's no money, what does that really mean? And we found out that we couldn't get any financial information from the administration. So we looked into the tax returns of the university and we found out that the administrative costs had gone up 40% in the last four years. So we, at that point, we sort of felt, you know, we need professional help with this. We can't put together these kind of plans without really knowing where, where we're working from. So did you all contact SEIU or did they come to you or did you look at you know, potential other unions? I actually I have to admit, I think of SEIU as sort of a blue collar union. Yeah, I really feel like that's kind of like the old way of looking at them. I think they're really sort of publicizing themselves these days as not your grandfather's union. Um, really, the, the people that they represent in the greater Boston area, and they do represent a large number of faculty now, are professional people. I mean, pe- people with higher degrees, not your sort of blue-collar grandfather's union. But am I right that, and this is a a bit of a side uh, detour, but am I right that they tend to represent adjunct faculty as opposed to full-time tenure? Yeah, this is where the precedent-setting part of it comes because we are tenured and this would be a big precedent. So uh, when you realized that administrative costs were skyrocketing and that you were looking at huge pay cuts, did the faculty then at the medical school approach SEIU and say, hey, we want to work with you? Yeah. Yeah. And, And... 
what did they say to you? They were like, okay, <laughs> All right. let's give this a try. Yes. So what's happened so far and what still needs to happen from your point of view? So the first thing that has to happen is that we have to send out cards to everybody in the faculty. So the faculty can express an interest in having a union in the first place. So we've done that. And we needed 30% interest in order to move forward. And we got 60% without trying at all. Mm. So at that point, you then file with the National Labour Relations Board for permission to hold a elections and we d we've done that we did that on Friday so now what happens is within eight days or in eight days we have a hearing at the National Labour Relations Board about whether or not we can have elections and so honestly I think both our lawyers and Tufts lawyers are looking now to try to put that off till after the holidays because of course eight days from now is really getting into the you know the, the holidays and we would like to delay it because of that. I want to ask you about the legal precedents involved and also about how this has affected the, the climate inside mm -hmm. the medical school. But first, I want to get Harvey Silverglade into this conversation. Harvey, as someone who is a <coughs> longtime student of the ethos of higher education in the U.S., what do you make of the situation that Kalina describes? Well, it's not a surprise at all that the faculty is being treated the way it is. And the reason for that is that the university has become, for lack of a better term, I would say corporatized and bureaucratized. And I saw this coming in the mid-1980s. Uh, this is a long-standing and slowly accreting problem every year. It has now gotten to the point where faculty needs to protect itself. But in fact, it's too bad faculties, both in college level and at professional school levels, didn't see this coming 15 years ago. I did. I wrote about it in the Boston Phoenix. Since I don't have my uh, Phoenix archives <clears> here <throat> at my fingertips, what was it that you saw 15 years ago or longer ago that, that made you think, okay, here's a, a sea change coming in the way universities operate? The rise of the administrative class, um, if I can call them that, uh, suddenly faculty was beginning to lose power and administrators were starting to take over. So whereas when I was in college, it was one dean of student life for an entire f student body. I went to Princeton, one dean. Now you've got an army of them. And the, it started in the mid-1980s and it continues to grow. And as administrators grew, faculty power diminished. Believe it or not, I've been representing students since I started as a lawyer, 1967. And let me give you a little hint. No, they will not kill each other if there aren't 15 or 20 deans and associate deans and assistant deans. They actually would get along quite well. Karina, you've been chomping at the bit. I haven't let you get back in. Uh, what did you want to say in response to Harvey's point about bureaucratization? Well, I really wanted to take it back sort of several ideas ago and say that I think it's sort of... A it's, it's not quite accurate to say that people didn't see it coming. We've been very much aware of this for a long time. Medical school and professional schools in general have a, a somewhat of a different perspective on things than the undergraduate campus. And so we've been very much aware that, and this is very actually important in in. in regards to our potential legal case going forward. We've been very much aware that the administration has been circumventing and subverting the role of faculty in making decisions and being part of the decision-making process. I think that's really f clear. Well, let me ask you um, two, two related questions. How did you become aware of this uh, increased bureaucratization that we've been talking about inside the medical school? What shape did it take? And then how have those administrators, as you see it, 
uh, usurped your role to some extent. Well, so let me give you a very specific example based on the issue that we're dealing with at the moment. So in order to make a case to the National Labour Relations Board, we need to persuade them that the yeshiva ro- rule is not in effect. I'm glad you brought that up. This is this landmark Supreme right. Court ruling which says effectively, well, you can explain it. Right. So this yeshiva ruling occurred a long time ago in the 1980s. And basically they said... Tenured faculty can't have a union because they're part of the management. They're in the decision-making process. They're making decisions for the university. They're officers of the university. And since then, tenured faculty have not been able to have unions because of that. Now, what the National Labour Relations Board has realised in the last few years, that exactly what Harvey's saying, this is actually no longer true, that our role in the decision-making process has been completely um, wiped out. Basically. And am I correct? There was a National Labor Relations Board ruling earlier this year that opened the door to sort of circumventing yeshiva for that reason. Precisely, Absolutely. Right? And so the, the, uh, what the, the Labor Relations Board said on, in that ruling was they said, we're going to look at five very specific aspects of the faculty's role. One of them is its role in academic programs. One of them is its role in um, enrollment policies. And the third is the role in finance. And then there are other two um, as well, but they're sort of minor. And so so basically, if you look at any of those three, the faculty doesn't ha- has very little role. In the yeshiva decision, they said at yeshiva, the faculty can decide what to teach, when to teach, who to teach, how to teach. And these days, that's really not true. There's a whole administrative structure at Tufts, the um, Office of Educational Affairs, which really dictates that. Now, one of the things that's kind of interesting is that when we first saw that, we thought, oh, God, we're dead in the water because we have these all very nice committee structures, which seem to suggest that the faculty has this role. But what the NLRB said was no, we don't want to look at the org chart. We want to know exactly what happens on the ground. And that's when sort of the faculty came, let's say, crawling out of the woodwork with stories about how their very basic rights as teachers and educators were being subverted by the administration. Karina uh, Mayeri, give me some other examples of prerogatives that you have lost in your time at Tufts Medical School. By the way, when did you start at the medical school? Well, so I've been a professor since the Stone Ages, but I only actually came to Tufts in 2000. So I'm pretty much a rookie there in terms of you know the time that people have been professors over there. So what what if anything has changed from your vantage point in your time at Tufts? Well, I think exactly years? what Harvey said. Really, there's a whole sort of middle management structure of administrators that direct things like what to teach, when to teach, how to teach, and who to teach. They direct things like enrollment. You know, they triage the um, um, applications so that we only see a, a subset of them. And in terms of finances, not even at the department level do we have any control of our own finances. Really? Everything's done... Se- done oh, that surprises it, me. Yeah, I know. It would surprise you because usually universities have, you know, departmental budgets. And while we may have a, a figure, the department chair doesn't have the control over how that money is spent. Hmm. Harvey Silvergoat, you want to get back in here? Yeah, you know, I just want to make sure that we all understand, I'm sure, I'm sure we, we, we do. Uh, I'm sure Karina that, does, I'm not sure about me. That, well, uh, understands that this has, well, the problem we're talking about, the corporization of the academy and the, really the, uh, uh, the, the, the trimming of the powers and authorities and the roles of the faculty members, uh, has implications for the uh, quality of the education of the students. We're not here to just talking about pocketbook issues for faculty. We are talking about the quality of education because more and more the education is being taken over by bureaucrats. The reason that 
that curricula is so whittled down. If you compare certain courses 25 years ago to courses today, and you see what pablum is dished out to the students, it's an administrative problem rather than a, an academic problem. Karina, do you think you've been reduced to dishing out pablum to your students? Um, I think there's a, a huge amount of teaching to the test that wasn't tr certainly wasn't true when I started out my academic career. So in your situation, would that be teaching to the, uh, I'm blanking on the name of the, the MCAT, well, uh, No, the MCAT is what students take before uh, they apologize. come to medical school. All right, so, so what test, what test are you right. teaching So to? it's step one of the board. So this is the first um, exam that medical students take that, that will eventually get them licensure. So a lot of the curriculum now is directed to getting the students through that. And that's obviously, it's, you want them to pass it. But the notion that all you teach them is what they need to know on these boards and that anything else they need to know they'll have to learn on their own is kind of a bit startling, really. And have you personally had go-rounds with administrators where you have said, you know, yeah, I, I, this is what I want and need to be teaching my students. Here's why it's important. And they've said to you, Karina, with all due respect, no, you're not going to do that? Yeah, so... I um, used to direct the neuroscience course for dental students. So you can make an argument. How much neuroscience does a dental student need? Well, they know, need to know how the jaw is innovated because if they don't, they can pull out teeth and it can cause you really bad problems. And so we used to have quite a considerable um, course in neuroscience. And then the administration at the dental school decided that they didn't need that and they whittled it down from 27 lectures to three lectures. And at that point... 27 to three. <laughs> and at that point I said, well, you know, the last time I tried to teach neuroscience in three lectures, it was to phlebotomists, not to dentists. And so I feel like... <laughs> phlebotomists, I'm, I want to make sure I remember correctly, they're the people who draw, draw, draw your blood, Draw right? blood, right. And so at that point, I felt like I couldn't contribute to this because I can't, you know, this is too much of a cut. But the problem at your level, Karina, is actually more serious at the college level. I read a report the other day um, <clears throat> that uh, reported that... Uh, 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 at t 25 top colleges, English majors, only one college required that the English majors read Shakespeare. Now, when that reaches the medical school, I'm going to go get my medical care outside of the country. Well, this is a, uh, actually a fascinating sort of sub-conversation because my assumption would be that, that the uh, muscle flexing of administrators uh, that people might balk at is more pronounced in the humanities and social sciences in, in areas where, you know, the culture wars are, are fought by proxy. But Karina, you make it sound like you're getting plenty of pushback. Are your colleagues as well? Oh, absolutely. One of them told me a really kind of interesting story about um, a very eminent microbiologist of many years standing, calling up the administration and saying, you know, um, I'm the microbiologist, you're not the microbiologist, so you're dictating what we teach here is not really appropriate. And the administrator saying to them, that's incredibly arrogant of you. Really? <laughs> yes. And I think that kind of, that really sums it up. But I'd like to kind of um, also incorporate another aspect in which the medical school is different from the undergraduate campus, and that's from the point of view of research, right? So one of the major functions that the medical school carries out is the, is research and 
I was actually reading a, an article in the paper on, on Sunday about the last winner of the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine. And it was the person who invented ivermectin, which is this antiparasitic, which has had a huge impact in the third world. We don't really suffer from parasitic diseases. They tend to be diseases that you get when you don't have clean water, which obviously are much more of a third world problem. Is this one of those medications that was just picked up by that arch-villain former hedge fund manager, Martin Shkreli? No, no, not okay. yet. <laughs> right, give him time. Not yet. I hope this doesn't inspire him. Anyway, so what he said was, you know, for years I went into the lab every day and tried to kill worms with my compounds. And finally, I found a compound. We could never do experiments like that these days. And it does seem really boring. I, I no, but the no, 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 no. That doesn't the, seem boring. It actually point, seems terrifying. Point, I'm wincing here because I'm imagining, you know, the, the articles I periodically see and try not to read because they terrify me about how all our antibiotics are yeah, going yeah. to stop but working. The, but the point is, you have to have the space to fail in research. And that's what so tenure and job security gives you in the biomedical research community is the space to fail. And if you don't have that, if it's if it's dealt with as a product that you have to produce on a regular basis, then that just stymies innovation because most of the innovation is not done by coming in at nine o'clock in the morning to make a product. It's when somebody says to somebody else, here, this is weird. Why don't you take a look at this rather than product driven um, activities? Well, that's all part of the corporatization, and it's going to be. It, it's already. It's already uh, causing huge problems at the undergraduate level. And I, you know, just as an example, and it may not seem relevant, but it is very relevant. I'm a student of the Harvard Crimson. I've read it since I arrived in Cambridge in 1964. It's a solid campus publication. Yes, independent student newspaper, self-funded. It's got. got I think it's got a um, <clears throat> an endowment. Uh, and, and uh, I could always depend on the Harvard Crimson to give the other point of view from the administration's point of view until about three years ago. Suddenly, the editorial pages and the news pages of the Crimson started to become very supportive of the administration rather than critical. And I realized it's because these kids started out in the lower grades being acculturated to this new, this new academic culture where you didn't question so much as you got along, you were nice to each other, you didn't say bad things. What kind of issues are you talking about? The, uh, the speech, Crimson Ed page, go ahead. The, 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 the Crimson editorial positions with regard to, for example, administrative overreach, sexual assault, um, things of that nature, very controversial issues where suddenly the students are not as critical of the administration, except when the administration doesn't make life comfortable mm -hmm. enough for them. I know I, I had a conversation a few years ago with a high Harvard administrator about the libraries now have all lunch counters and uh, espresso uh, you know, in the libraries. And I said, why do you waste space with this kind of thing? And... Um, and he said to me, oh, well, this is what our customers demand. And I thought to myself, I just got the answer. You know, they're customers. They're not looked at as students. Karina, I want to make sure that before we uh, ramp up today that you tell me how this unionizing or union drive has uh, affected the climate at the medical school. I'm wondering what your interactions with administrators have been like since this effort was launched, whether there's any internal dissension among faculty, sharp disagreements. Uh, how has it changed, if it has changed, the way you relate to your colleagues? Well, I feel like the fact that we were able to get 60% of the faculty to sign on without really trying 
says a lot because medical school faculty traditionally are quite conservative with a small c and particularly Tufts faculty are absolutely devoted to the university. I mean, many of them have been there many years and they will do anything to avoid, in quotes, embarrassing the university. So this, I think, is evidence of real sort of desperation that they were willing to do that. One of the big problems with this salary issue that has sort of raised its ugly head is that the administration has actually encouraged pockets of faculty to pit against each other, which is very unusual for us, actually pretty collegial. And it's really not a healthy way. So we're hoping that the unionisation effort will bring people together and prevent these sort of administration kind of sanctioned in a way um, divisions between us. When you say there's there's uh, administration sanctioned competition, are you talking about competition for funds? Or? Well, so so the notion being that you know the salary committee came up with this plan, the administration said it didn't work, and then an, an, another group of faculty said, well, wait a minute, we aren't even considered in this plan. So they go to the administration to make a side gotcha. deal. That kind, all that kind of issue. All right. So tell me and tell our listeners one more time, what comes next? All right. So and I'm glad you really glad you asked that because I was hoping to have the opportunity to answer that question here. So we'll have the hearing and at the hearing, the NLRB will decide whether we can have a union. Now, the the whole yeshiva thing does not come into play unless Tufts challenges our petition. And so our hope is that Tufts will not challenge it. Why shouldn't they challenge it? There are two reasons. The first reason is that the mantra of Tufts is civil activism, social justice, active citizenship. Why would you challenge something when your faculty is working towards that? The second reason that Tufts should not challenge it is that they already have a union for exactly the adjuncts that you talked about previously. If they didn't challenge that union, why would they challenge us? What would be What's so special about us that we don't deserve representation? as well. And that hearing is going to take place when? Well, so, like I said, it should take place on the 21st of um, December, but, you're but we'd after... love to have it on January the 4th or what have you. All right. I want to give Harvey the last uh, last chance to win here. Harvey, you heard Karina make the case about why Tufts should not challenge what they're doing. What do you think Tufts will do? I think they will challenge. I think they'll lose. And I have to say that the this would, if I can call it a revolt of the faculty, isn't my Karina, can he call it a revolt to the faculty? Uh, not to the faculty. We're uh, trying to be upbeat. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Harvey. Well, revolt by the faculty is, in, in essence, uh, to put it in terms we can all understand, the beginning of the return of the Jedi. And uh, I do hope that the Empire is significantly weakened by this uh, campaign. A very timely metaphor. Right. And I never thought of the administration as Darth Vader, but I'm liking the analogy. All right. Karina Mayuri, Harvey Silverglate, thank you both for taking the time to come in and talk with me. Thanks, Adam. That is going to do it for this week's edition of The Scrum. If you like what you heard today, then please subscribe to us on iTunes. And while you're there, leave a review. You can find links to iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud on our website, wgbhnews.org scrum. You can also email us feedback and ideas for future conversations at scrum at wgbh.org. Our producer is Amanda McGowan. Our engineer is John Parker. I'm Adam Riley, and The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.